The whole concept was that we wanted to create events that were varied in level for people to be able to interact and participate. I come from a background of uh, ARG and LARP design. I got this out of the blue email. Hey, this is gonna sound crazy. We want you to come to West Virginia and go to the middle of the woods. We need to cast actors for this event. People you've never met before and take them up to a cabin and then have this experience with them. And it's gonna be great. I said, of course I'm gonna do that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> what we do a little bit differently at Encantrix that is unlike other immersive experiences that we have a lot more interactive elements and we have more audience agency. Play is a window for us into seeing that we have the power to change ourselves and to change our lives anytime that we want. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. Today, we have joining us Caroline Murphy, co-founder of Encantrix Productions. This conversation starts at Encantrix, moves to the creation of an immersive experience that contends with the malevolent group of fairies, and finally, sticks the landing neatly in the realm of psychology, with an exploration of the truly mind-boggling potential of immersive design. I am incredibly excited about this particular front of immersion, and I truly think this conversation begins to frame just how much immersive experience could do for our culture. All right, Caroline, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. So uh, I'm really glad that Justin uh, pointed me in the direction of Encantrix and uh, facilitated the little digital introduction there. Um, so many questions because it seems like the formats that you use in Immersive are really varied and I'm, it's way too many questions, way too many questions. But, <laughs> All right. Well, then we should we should dive in. Yeah. But before I get ahead of myself, of course, as a mm -hmm. tradition, I have to ask if you had to live in and play some role in any fictional or fantasy world could be your favorite, but some place that you'd like to say wander around for an afternoon or potentially visit for a week or something of that variety. Um, what fictional or fantasy world would you lean towards? OK, so after thinking about it. I think that I would want to be in the world of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is a book by Susanna Clark, and they made a BBC series out of it, a limited run BBC series, I believe. And it was excellent. And I really, really love that world. Are you familiar with uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? I am not at all, though. I'm very curious. Tell me more if you'd be down. Sure. So it's a world, it's an, uh, an all human world. It's a uh, Napoleonic era. Uh, and it is uh, a world in which magic exists and there are practical magicians and there are theoretical magicians and practical magic has all but been lost. The art of magic has been lost. And a, a young man named Jonathan Strange um, just happens to be a, magi a magician who is a practical magician and starts to figure out magic just by experimenting and doing interesting things with mirrors and uh, candles and all sorts of other things. And uh, then basically 
it gets revealed that the Fae exist and that the Fae may, may be connected to this kind of source of magic. It's wrapped up in a lot of Celtic mythology and other cool things. And it is delightful. Ooh, that sounds phenomenal. I love yeah, that the it's Fae becomes a, becomes a reveal in that too, as, as opposed to an initial statement in the world. Yeah, and the Fae are are not like they're happy-go-lucky fae. They are creepy. They are they are scary and creepy and otherworldly. And I love that kind of, those kind of fae. Which they really were originally. Like they were, I mean, the yeah. whole stolen child thing and uh, changeling, that, that was the name in the mythology initially, I think. Yes, um, yes. Like they were not initially a super friendly bunch. No, not at all. Uh, so, but I mean, it, it, there are different legends of fae. I, I know a lot about fairies. <laughs> but... Uh, there are different legends of different fae or fae-like creatures in almost every culture across time that we have recorded. So the uh, and they are sometimes benevolent, sometimes malevolent, uh, sometimes they're just totally chaotic. So fae are as varied as people, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, well, I'm super excited to jump back into that once we wrap back around to make it immersive. Um, but to start off with, could you potentially just explain? In Cantrix as potentially just an overall overarching umbrella concept initially, and then we can dig a little bit more into the crown and uh, carnival world, etc. Um, but yeah, sure. just initially in Cantrix. So Encantrix uh, is Encantrix Productions is the company that myself and my business partner Athena Peters run. And Encantrix is a, the, the whole concept was that we wanted to create events that were varied in level for people to be able to interact and participate. So what we do a little bit differently in Encantrix that is unlike immersive, um, other immersive experiences is that we have a lot more interactive elements and we have more audience agency. So we design with the mind towards allowing the audience to feel like they are truly part of the world, can influence the world and can make changes in the world based on uh, the way that they interact. So we basically have two different styles of events. One is something we call Encantrix Universe events, which are events that have a cohesive timeline that the audience influences and changes. And based on audience choice, those events uh, will, will mute and change over time. And then we have what we call like kind of pocket universe events, which are uh, other events that take place uh, kind of outside of that timeline, but are um, still super fun and interesting and engaging that are you know, different settings and different genres and things like that. So an example of an Encantrix universe event is the Carnival. An example of a pocket universe event is Crown Me. So uh, it allows us to kind of have very infinite potentials and possibilities for what we're doing while still uh, allowing people to get more immersed and more into the events if they want to have something where they are part of the story. Yeah, so you have like a little bit of continuous... Um, alternate reality game on one side and then more finite pocket universes over on the other end. But, exactly, yeah. exactly. I come from a background of uh, ARG and LARP design. Um, so I've, I uh, was uh, one of the co-conspirators for GMD Studios, which was an amazing studio that was run back in the day uh, by Brian Clark. Um, Brian Clark 
and uh, J.D. Ashcraft and a bunch of other people who are all different kind of transmedia and art designers. And this was back in like 2007 to 2009 that I was working with GMD and got introduced to the world of ARGs and alternate reality games. And I just fell crazy in love with it. I originally came in as an actor for GMD and then started doing writing and pitching and other stuff with them. And that was really what inspired me to go start a business of my own and, uh, and try to make this thing work. And where is that group um, located? Where are they anchored to? GMD was out of New York City and Florida. They had offices in both of those places. Um, uh, Brian Clark was also one of the founders of IndieWire. Brian was an amazing, amazing individual. Um, He passed away several years ago from cancer, and it was just a tragic loss for the entire community. Brian was beloved by, by everybody. Brian was an amazing person. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's difficult. I'm sorry. Uh, so you came from New York city then and kind of had your introduction to that world initially there. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. Well, so, uh, in New York was, I lived and worked in New York, um, during, and then after college, I got introduced to that group, um, because of, uh, the LARPing community. Uh, I was playing in in different Cthulhu games, and at the time, GMD was starting to run a Cthulhu campaign, and they needed to cast actors who were familiar with the the Cthulhu mythos and could portray a certain very specific type of character who was very witchy and into tarot cards and did all things sorts of things like that. And I got introduced to that group. They found my dream blog and uh, and then I got this out of the blue email from Brian that said hey, this is going to sound crazy, but we need to cast actors for this event. And we want you to come to West Virginia and go to the middle of the woods and meet people you've never met before and take them up to a cabin and then have this experience with them. And it's going to be great. And I said, of course, I'm going to do that. That sounds Uh amazing. (laughs) That does sound amazing. It was so cool. And that really just hooked me on the potential of immersive and interactive entertainment in the way that it can be so impactful and transformative for people. Yeah. And of course, we have the introduction of the tarot cards right there already. Um, Oh, yeah. That's a big thing for me. (laughs) And which we will certainly come back to. But to um, rewind just a little bit. So um, we got introduced via Justin Files of Any One Thing. He's episode 12 for any audience listeners who care to check that out. But specifically, I was really curious because he came from a tech background and he worked with you in that world. Um, yeah. Before both of you happened to diverge off into doing immersive based events. So, like, what kind of was that transition like? Was he part of GMD? Um, did you draw him into that or was it more happenstantial? Like what was that transition like overall? Totally happenstance. But I think that this sort of, of entertainment style and this sort of, of art form attracts a type of person. And that person tends to be very free thinking, very open, looks at problems very creatively and tends to really enjoy systems, enjoy looking at a system holistically and then figuring out how we can rearrange the system to benefit everybody or to, I I just think that it tends to draw that type of thinker. And Justin is definitely that type of thinker. We're both, we both were doing strategy at a tech company and it just 
makes sense to me that like that Justin's also in this, this universe. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I really like that perspective of a different application of systems thinker, because that's definitely kind of a buzzword that gets frequently thrown around in the tech world, but it makes a massive amount of sense that that applies very much to the world of immersion too, because that line of thinking is super similar. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of asking yourself the question of how do I create a repeatable, interesting experience that somebody is going to be able, you know, for me, the goal is often transformation. Like I, a lot of my work is aimed at giving people agency and authority to kind of realize that they can change their own lives. But whatever it is, whatever your goal is, you have to kind of look at it holistically of like, okay, so I need a person to feel or experience this sort of thing, how can I repeatedly create that sort of framework that someone can do that? And that's something that is applicable across all different sorts of art forms. But I think it's, I mean, I think that tech and tech entrepreneurship is an art form in and of itself in some ways where you do have to think about how you're going to create that system, how you're going to repeatedly create interesting experiences for people. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, really, it's just the creation of of systems and i like to think of both as people from the tech world as makers very much as well just communicating in a different medium and bringing people together to make a thing that makes a meaningful change in someone's life Um, exactly exactly so specifically on the note of agency because that really is in so many ways what it's all about agency and transformation and demonstrating that kind of potential to people who participate in immersive experiences um, from what I understand of the carnival continuing ethos that you guys have created, there are a multitude of different ways that people can interact, whether that be puzzles or just deciding to kind of relax and take a back seat a little bit and drink in the world, so to speak, um, without necessarily actively engaging if one so chooses. So like what kind of different levels of interaction do you guys have within Carnival? Because it seems really, really varied in comparison to a lot of other experiences that kind of have, you know, maybe one set path or a core narrative. And there's like one thing that people are supposed to do versus having a lot of options. Right, exactly. I think about this as a, so I come from the background of ARG design and LARP design. And when you're creating games like that, you often have the precedent of of the the kind of common modes of interaction for people, right? So you have mechanics, you have game mechanics that are that are trying to get people to follow certain rules and have certain interactions. So the way that I think about experience design for something like this is like, okay, how do we take something that's very gamey like that, but that could sometimes be almost like a living tabletop game and change it so that it's interesting for people who are at that one-on-one level, someone who has never been to an immersive event. They have no idea what they're in for. They came and they're, they're expecting to have a drink and see a show, but they still want to have fun and be able to interact. So I have tried to create different pathways for people to be able to kind of get immersed and kind of, and change those things. So this is something that we do a lot of thinking about in the, I'm in a design cohort called the playable theater project, which we run out of Northeastern university. And it has, 
it's super cool. You should definitely check it out. Uh, the Playable Theater Project has amazing creators in it, like Kelly and Adams from Green Door Labs and Lizzie Stark from Stark Productions, Celia Pierce, who's one of the founders of Indicate and runs the design program uh, for us at Northeastern. Oh, amazing. Incredible, incredible designers. Sam Liberty, like we have, we have a really, really awesome design cohort. So one of the things that we think a lot about is how can we create these different pathways and what's the right way to enable audience agency? And some of the things that we found are that number one, having onboarding that is really clear and really good onboarding is super important for people being able to set expectations and enjoy themselves. And then also once you're kind of there in the experience, uh, giving people different sorts of ways and modes of interacting that they can feel comfortable with is going to provide the best opportunity for people to be able to have the fun and kind of pick out what they want to do. So at the base level, you can kind of think of it as like a, uh, I think of it as like social, uh, mental, physical, right? So people who are who are really interested in the social, you want to create kind of a role play track for them. So often they'll get hooked by a character who says, Hey, I need help uh, solving this mystery. Can you help? Can you help me go interview all these people? If you're on a, um, uh, a mental track, like think of that as kind of like the puzzling track, right? So immediately they get hooked by a character who says, Hey, I need your help. I need all these uh, different dreams deciphered or all these puzzles solved. And that will hook people who are in for the puzzle. And then, and in terms of the physical, you have uh, it's it, physical can be challenging with immersive, but you can bring in elements of the physical. Um, like, so one of the experiences I recently designed was very much like all physical and it was all about creating comfort for people to move their meat sacks around in meat space. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for that, you just start with really simple instruction, like physical instruction, right? Like pretend you're, you have a glowing ball in your hands and you're moving it around and like just getting people to interact. There was really interesting physical interaction mechanics at um, Mortality Machine too, which is a show that Thinking Ship put on. And um, I really, I thought it was very interesting the way that they, they had they enabled physical touch but making it safe for for all the actors and people who are experiencing it as well and i could like talk and talk and talk about this but i'll uh, I'll, I'll wrap up here <laughs> in order to say that i think you have to really design with different sorts of of tracks in mind for what people might enjoy and just aesthetically some people just want to kind of sit back and and enjoy the environment and I think that there's uh, there's a lot that you can do there that just provides entertainment value. So one of the things we always try to do with Encantrix is having ambient performers. So we have lots of circus arts performers and people just doing and like magicians, people doing ambient stuff so that people who want to have a drink and sit at their table can still uh, feel entertained and feel uh, like they're having a good time. Wow. Yeah. And it definitely sets the stage and kind of, I feel like probably makes the places that you can do this in much more versatile instead of being very very attached to a set you have the the social dynamic whether that be simply from an observational standpoint or an interactive standpoint being the thing that sets the universe in place absolutely yeah exactly i think that um well it depends on the show like what like you can i think that install sets can be incredibly important for evoking immersion but you can also kind of frame your show in a way that the characters provide most of the backdrop for people so that you don't actually need much production value in terms of like your set in order to convince people of the immersion of what they're doing. Yeah, certainly. 
And just like to touch briefly on uh, onboarding, I I feel like the majority of immersive creators, and then please correct me if I'm wrong here, but from what I've witnessed, the majority of immersive creators oftentimes have a very, very fine-tuned and finite specific um, onboarding process that has to be right because it has to appeal to various audiences um, and make the make the show an accessible thing. I love mm-hmm. that you just kind of decided to forsake that and just like be like, we're just going to do it all. We're just going to have a little bit of different possibility for everybody inside of this. So we don't have to create this system that's hyper specific and very, very breakable. Um, you just yeah, open I- it up. I, I, well, I think that part of that comes from my love of kind of freeform LARP traditions, where a lot of freeform LARP is uh, a really about the person who is interacting, self-defining what their goals are and self-defining what their character is and self-defining what they're really looking to get out of of the evening. And you can give them guidelines and help them with that. But if people walk in and you're and you're giving them too much of, uh, this is exactly who you are. This is exactly what your goal is. This is exactly what you want to do. Then a lot of times, like if that doesn't resonate with them, they're going to have a bad time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a very finite balance to play there for sure. Um, yeah. So I think potentially if you would be willing, it might be a good time to jump into the make it immersive segment. Sure. Let's do it. So this this world, this world of malevolent fae and potentially practical, though rare magic, mm-hmm. um, what what would it look like to turn that into an immersive experience, specifically with the way that you think about the design process? So I think that there would be, I would start with a call to action for the audience that seemed like mystical and wonderful, right? They get invited to join a group of theoretical magicians. They get a letter that says, oh, we noticed your your uh, paper in the latest journal where you're talking about the, the occult writings of, you know, this and that person. And we were very impressed and we'd like to invite you to join us for uh, an evening of theoretical discussion. And so you could show up to this event and and uh, be introduced to all of these theoretical magician characters, right? Who could be very wildly different and interesting and all kind of kooky, wacky characters in and of themselves. Um, And then I would start introducing other elements, right? So uh, at, at some juncture... You have a, uh, a debate that comes up between the theoretical and practical magicians. So you have this kind of tension, that kind of central tension between the theoretical and practical magicians. But the overarching story would have to be about um, uh, these theoretical and practical magicians fighting would be uh, basically a, a red herring for the larger thing that's going on, which is that there's some sort of malevolent fey problem that the audience would need to solve and they would need to solve it by by joining together the theoretical and practical and getting those groups to align so that's what i would do that sounds absolutely phenomenal um wow (laughs) (laughs) just spitballing here (laughs) just spitballing 
ready for it. <laughs> but of course, that onboarding year certainly sounds very similar to your own path being introduced to GMD. So, yeah, the, yeah. But that I, that just the real world introduction of that world sounds very magical in and of itself. Come out to the woods and, you know, have this tarot card oriented experience with these people. Yeah, I love things that are that little taste of mystery, right? Like a secret invitation or a, uh, you know, a you're invited and, and things that seem mysterious and, and wondrous. Like that's, I think that, that that's what makes me want to be in immersive events. And I think that, that that feeling of secrecy and mystery is what draws a lot of people towards the the immersive scene. Yeah, most certainly. The wonder of discovery is definitely something that never, ever gets old. And it's amazing Absolutely. to see so many brilliant creatives just making that a reality in the world in so many different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and on the note of the Fae, what, how would you approach that out of curiosity? Because of course, you know, you have the, you have the issue of wings though. I know that that's not necessarily part of every um, myth or interpretation of the Fae ethos. But like, what would, how would those characters be introduced might be the right question. That's a great question. I feel like there would need to be a, it would need to be a much more felt presence than a scene presence. So I think that the felt presence would be in manifestations with the other characters. So at like, at the stroke of midnight, suddenly all the characters who are in that, uh, who are actors in the world would like stop and turn around three times and clap their hands and like say something creepy. Right. <laughs> and it would be something like, oh gosh, there's something horrifying going on here. And then afterwards they'd all deny that it happened. Right. And you'd have, you'd realize that there was something that you needed to do in order to stop this. So it would be a, a ritual or a puzzle or, or a combination of those things in order to, to free those characters from this spell that is enchanting them. Oh my word. I'm so ready to play. <laughs> <That's an incredible laughs> um, so, all right, moving from there to potentially jump into rapid fire questions just a bit here, um, just to be conscious of the time as we move along. Um, I think what actually might be a really great segue here would be what do you see as the value of play? So I'm going to go with my classic Caroline answer here and then just talk about transformative potential. I think that play is a window for us into seeing that we really can create our own realities. We can choose what character we want to play in this, in our own reality, and that we have the power to change ourselves and to change our lives anytime that we want. And I think that play enables us that window into a safe place where we can try on different costumes and try on different characters and try on different things. And some of them really fit. And when we realize that and see that through the power of play, we can bring that back into our real lives and make amazing change. Yeah, most certainly. Why, why do you think that people struggle to see that in their everyday lives, the possibility of change? Um, I think people are afraid. Uh, I think that you know, we, as human beings, we just have a natural tendency to crave stability and security because so much of life is so chaotic and things do change without your say so. And so holding on to our kind of attachments to, to the way that we want things to be can create a lot of fear about loss, fear about 
well, what if I change something about myself and I don't like it? And uh, I think that 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 fear drives a lot of the the stagnation that we see in people and um, that play can help to remedy that. Yeah, most certainly. Most certainly. Um, So from there is is there a specific well actually no never mind i was going to say is there a specific mission or why behind incantrix but we've definitely already touched on that quite a few times yeah. um so then potentially um i guess i would want to ask a little bit about the crown um is this this current run your first run of the show or is this where does this lay in the overall timeline of Encantrix? Oh, for uh, Crown Me? Mm-hmm. Uh, Crown Me is an event that is like a pocket universe event. So that event is, um, that one's, it's more like a living board game than anything else that we've ever done. And it's very kind of Game of thrones kind of setting universe. Um, that has run two times now um, to, with great success. And we've made some really awesome design improvements on it. But I think that if I were running that event again, I would want to do it over a longer format with more production value. So I'm thinking things like having an all day, you know, tournament style where we have people doing, um, you know, fencing and you know, jousting, but probably we couldn't get horses and jousting. I know it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not practical. Uh, but having, you know, making it even more kind of like this this decadent um, feast style event where you'd, I'd want it to kind of take place all day. I feel like one of the weaknesses of Crown Me is that there's so much happening over such a quick period of time that uh, that people don't almost don't get to enjoy the the setting and, and playing their characters because they're so busy wheeling and dealing and trying to to backstab each other that they don't often get to a chance to kind of breathe and think and plan and relax. So I'd want to kind of draw it out over like the course of an entire day and make it a, a big fun feast event. Yeah, most definitely. Um, because the last time that was hosted uh, at uh mit or a location that mit owns like a big old manor house yeah mit endicott house it's a beautiful beautiful mansion up here uh we're very lucky to have some incredible historical buildings up in new england and so we have some gorgeous spots like museums that were that that were have been awesome to work with and the mit endicott house which is a gorgeous place like it's just beautiful and the grounds are amazing. So we run a number of different events there from like our fairy masquerade balls to uh, the crown me event. Um, it's, it's a really gorgeous set. Wow. That sounds really incredible. Yeah. Having more time to explore that could definitely not be a negative thing. Um, yeah, exactly. That sounds wonderful. So I, I am curious how you bring people who are, very much, I guess, the uninitiated folks who know very little to nothing at all about the world of ARG and LARPing into into not necessarily an experience specifically, but how do you bring people in in the first place? Like in the, say, awareness stage, if you're talking about like a funnel. And this is a question coming from a slightly selfish place because I feel like it's oftentimes mm-hmm. a very, very easy thing to get people who know something of the world excited once they do. But in as a matter of getting people 
interested in the first place in this something that sounds incredibly alien to anybody who haven't participated? Like, how do you approach that? That's a really good question. And I think that like every Everybody is asking that question in the immersive space right now because we know that what we're creating has a lot of of potential. Like, look at murder mystery dinners, right? Murder mystery dinners sell out, and they have tons and tons of audience members of all different kinds of age ranges, and and people love their murder mystery experience, even though those events aren't necessarily the most um, complex or or dynamic or um, you know, what we wouldn't think of as like the most high art, (laughs) but, but we know that people are going to these things. So we know that those people are interested in immersive. So how do you get that audience to come to more immersive and interactive shows? Great question. So, I mean, there's the classic kind of marketing playbook of, of awareness generation, right? Where you run promotions and you advertise to people and you try to uh, get in the sight of people who might be interested in these sorts of things. People who have attended this style of event might like this kind of thing and this things like, you know, just classic kind of uh, marketing tactics. Um, But I think that more than that, I think that I feel like we need to be having conversations on a a different level. And I'm excited for the fact that we have podcasts like this. I'm excited for the fact that that we have uh, publications that are starting to be like really regular and even more and more of them cropping up here and there uh, as we kind of think about design for this type of experience. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's a couple different ways to think about it, but I do think that there's a uh, there's just kind of a uh, a lack of knowledge or understanding about what these experiences are like. And I think we almost need to retrain potential audiences to understand uh, more about what is out there, what's, what's possible. And I think that some shows has, have done an amazing job at bringing in new audiences through theater. So Third Rail Productions is an example of a company who's doing a great job at kind of reaching new audiences with their production work. Obviously Punch Drunk is like kind of the gold standard and being able to bring in new audiences for an experience that is totally unlike anything that they've probably seen before and often opens up people to the possibility of what that's like. So I think that the rising tide lifts all boats. I think that if more of the us in the immersive and interactive space join forces and, and kind of promote each other, talk about each other's work, talk about all the stuff that's going on in this space, then the louder our voice collectively will be. Yeah, most definitely. And I think one of the one of the most significant barriers there um, is the fact that these kind of transformative experiences that open up a space for experimentation or vulnerability or just these things that solve problems in a way that very few or almost nothing else really does. I think yes. that that's really tricky to communicate because it pokes at problems that such a significant chunk of the population and the communities and culture around us has, but yeah. also a problem that the communities and cultures around us don't really like to look at too closely. It's definitely a conversation that's difficult to have in the first place. And so the the need that is kind of being filled there is it's tricky to convey without an initial like buy-in of vulnerability to even acknowledge that the problem is a thing in the first place. 
Absolutely. And that is tricky, right? Because you want to give people the opportunity to kind of set their own story, but you also don't want to be mucking around in people's heads if you're not a psychologist who's like trained in that sort of thing. So yeah, I think that being careful about the way in which we are exposing people to these things and then offering them systems of care after is uh, an important part of, of what we need to collectively be thinking about. Like, how are we making sure that we're taking care of people? Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is definitely a tricky question. And thankfully, I I mean, I feel like there's a significant degree of correlation between the fact that the conversation around, I don't want to say mental health because that immediately applies a certain degree of stigma, but general, like, I almost want to go the route of like mindfulness and self-awareness and emotional intelligence. The fact that that mind expansion, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. I think it's not coincidence that that conversation becoming one that's more easily and openly had and immersive theater and immersive entertainment on a multitude of levels becoming more frequent and becoming this kind of crazy, intense, immersive revolution or immersive wave, what have you. I don't think that's coincidence. I think there's definitely a very parallel and direct line that can be drawn there. I completely agree. I think it's, I mean, for, for me personally, it's the whole reason why this is my calling. This is, that's why I do this is because I see that this system of, of creating experience for people that can change their perspectives and change their lives is more effective than any other system that I have ever encountered, including a lot of psychotherapy and other things like that. So I think that there's a lot of, um, I mean, I think there is actually a lot of mental health potential here as well. And I think that's something that we're starting to explore with the help of psychologists as well. I've been like, I've been working with a, uh, a, a psychologist and researcher friend in order to create experiences that are, you know, bordering on psychodrama so that people can have the opportunity to explore these things in a safe environment. And we're talking now with like lots of research institutions about how we can apply these sorts of games within the, uh, the context of uh, mental health care as well. So I think that these conversations are going to evolve. And I think that those are going to probably come from the, the research and university space first before they kind of make their way out into the public in the p- public arena. Oh, my word. All right. So I, I can't gloss over that one. You said you've been working with research institutions in some capacity, exploring that concept. because That's been something I've been interested in for so long, so, so long. It's yeah, actually why I so, started doing what I'm doing right now. So I, so Northeastern is really interested in, uh, in creating a PhD program surrounding this topic specifically. And like the, the subject of research that I am doing with Northeastern is surrounding this very topic, right? How do we create repeatable, safe, transformative experiences for people? I like just as a question. And I think there's a lot of research that can be done in this topic. So um, I, a friend of mine recently introduced me to a researcher at Yale who's doing similar work. And there are just all these different kind of groups coming together and thinking about the, these problems and how do we, how do we provide these answers? And I think there's a lot to be gained from collaboration here. Wow. That is so incredible. And then on my, okay. So if I were to just kind of throw out there um, the the concept of a pattern interrupt or a potentially positive suppression of the default mode network to get technical there, does, does yeah. that language ring any bells insofar as the work absolutely. that you're doing? Yes, absolutely. I think yes. that that 
that um, that that quieting of the default mode network is something that um, people can do through meditation. People can do it through chemical inducement. But I think that it's also possible through um, experience design. Well, I mean, we know it's possible through experience design, right? Like a lot of of what people gain when they have uh, chemical inducement to these transformative experiences is because of set and setting. We know that. So if we can do that repeatedly uh, with the kinds of work that we're producing commercially, I think that we have something really amazing, right? We have something that can change the world. Yeah, yeah, most definitely, because the results of specifically targeting default mode network and for our audience, sorry to be getting a little bit technical here, but I think this is having a having a scientific anchor to what immersive theater can do beyond just entertainment as yes. a, I think is important to talk about like right. the buy-in um, of 10,000 hours of meditation to get to a point where you can consistently have that going on. That's a very, very high buy-in. Like it is, it is. And exactly. having another option is just this mind blowing concept to me because it really is so absurdly effective in so many ways. It is. And, and it's one of those things that um, people don't realize how much they need to quiet that default mode network and how much, So for people who don't know who are listening, when you quiet the default mode network, it allows you to have this kind of ego dissolving experience, which gives you a lot of perspective and gives you the power to change something in your mind. And uh, people who are able to do this can do things like quit smoking and uh, uh, quit addictions and stop engaging in like in destructive pattern behaviors that they've been they've been doing. So I do believe and I know this because I've experienced it myself that that transformative power through immersive experience is possible. And I think it's a matter of us understanding the mechanisms like the scientific mechanisms behind why and how. Yeah. And then being able to create a methodology from that, which it is exactly where I'd attack that. I was like, why is there not being research done in the immersive space? Before I jumped into Immersion Nation, I was working (laughs) at an escape room and kept playing with the idea of creating an actual research methodology for inside of an escape room. And I was like, all right, I need to push on this. There's something here. Yeah, that's so cool. That's exactly what uh, the subject of my PhD research is going to be. Oh, my gosh. All right. So you (laughs) most definitely have to send me that thesis if you would be willing once, once you move through that, I would absolutely love to read that. Absolutely. It's I mean, I'm all, it's a PhD, so I'll be working on it for a long time, obviously, but I will definitely keep you updated. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Um, Oh, and okay. Just to lend a little bit of extra context for listeners. Once again, outside of the, um, obviously negative behavioral patterns, such as smoking or addiction, default one network often is kind of just your autopilot um, as kind of uh, Danny Kahneman, I think, refers to it as system two in his Thinking Fast and Slow book. But it's it's just habits of any variety. So it doesn't necessarily have to be something that is very obviously and candidly malevolent or negative. It can be something just as simple as like self-talk or a certain degree of nervousness that you might have in a given situation or the way that you react to situations that you would like to be a little bit different. It's the habits that we often don't even realize that we have and really allows for personal transformation, transformation of identity or just simple little habits. And it really does span um, just so much of kind of 
identity, whether that is something, once again, that is explicitly negative or something that is much less obvious and less insidious. Um, it, it's really incredible. Absolutely. So, Neuroscience is so important to, to yes. all this, I think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so I think that we are coming up on what is very potentially a great place to wrap this conversation up. Um, that I was not expecting at all for this conversation to go in this direction, but I am <laughs> ecstatic uh, that it sorry. did. <laughs> no, no, <Welcome>. thank you. <laughs> this is like Caroline at all times. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's phenomenal. Oh man. All right. Um, so where can people find you, your work in Cantrix? Where would you like to point people to? Sure. You can check out our website at incantrixproductions.com. And uh, that's I-N-C-A-N-T-R-I-X. And you can uh, follow us on Facebook at Encantrix Productions. We're on Instagram at Encantrix P. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. We're on Twitter at Encantrix P. And we're on uh, Instagram at Encantrix P. All of it's on our website. You can follow all of our social network and things on uh, if you go to our website. Definitely. And I will certainly link that up in the show notes as well. It will be right there at the top for anybody who wants to venture into that. Even if you are not local to the Boston slash New York area, definitely worth exploring this really cool thing that is happening out on the East Coast there. Um, well, wonderful. Uh, so I guess potentially a great way to cap this might be to ask, do you have any asks or recommendations any potential potential bits of advice or suggestions any takeaways that you might want to leave with the audience um i would love for people to uh check out the playable theater project um if you search for playable theater project then uh you can find the design cohort that's that we run at northeastern um we have uh, free classes and workshops that we offer to people that uh, range from audience engagement to how to produce an event of your own. Um, and uh, we're, we're really excited to get people involved in and thinking more about producing these things because we want everyone to be able to create these kinds of experiences and create what's interesting to them. And I also would love to, um, I am, we've started a playable theater, uh, uh, project, uh, blog, and, uh, we're interested in if there are immersive designers who listen to this and you want to write something, it's from a designer perspective. So whether it's a, uh, a kind of review of another show from a designer's point of view, or it's a, your, your own thinking about immersive design, then we want those submissions because we're trying to create something that's kind of for and by designers. Most definitely. Well, wonderful. Caroline, it has been absolutely wonderful chatting. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I was so, I had such a great time talking with you and I am so excited to, uh, to listen and chat more and continue getting to know each other. Most definitely. And of course, for our audience, you can find all of this, all of the show notes, time references, et cetera, et cetera, at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? 
anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show, I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Immersion Nation podcast. Thank you for joining us in this adventure.